As we turn now to the sermon, I just have to tell you, I'm so thrilled. I'm thrilled uh, to preach to you this morning because this morning we come to my favorite chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And I know it's a favorite chapter for many of you. Uh, No Old Testament passage is quoted more often by the New Testament authors than the passage we come to today. Uh, You can find almost every single verse of this chapter quoted and explained and applied by authors in the New Testament. In fact, by my count, there are 15 verses here. I'll explain why 15 in a minute if you're confused. There's 15 verses here. I can find 13 of them quoted in the New Testament. The other two aren't quoted, but I believe they're alluded to by apostles at various points. Clearly, one of the most beloved Old Testament passages uh, by our apostles was the passage we come to this morning. And it's been a favorite for every generation of Christians. Polycarp, in the second century, uh, Polycarp himself was a disciple of the aged apostle John. Polycarp called this passage the golden passion account of the Old Testament. Back in the fifth century, Augustine said, it's not a prophecy, it's a gospel. And following uh, Augustine's lead, some scholars of the past have liked to refer to Isaiah 53 as a fifth gospel, uh, a, a gospel, a, a prequel, if you will, to be added to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Martin Luther said, every Christian ought to be able to repeat Isaiah 53 by heart. And I'm actually going to help you do that, maybe not verbatim by heart, perfectly like Awana wants you to do with only two helps. Uh, um, But I'm going to help you grow in your familiarity with it, and here's why. Uh, In this this chapter, there are, well, in this servant song, really, there are five stanzas of three verses each, and they are so rich, we're going to spend a Sunday on each passage. So, there's going to be, this is going to be a five-sermon series through Isaiah 53. And each Sunday, I'm not just going to read the three verses we're focusing on, I'm going to read the whole passage. So, if you attend regularly, you're going to have to at least, bare minimum, hear this read five times. And I hope that it will help you grow in familiarity with Isaiah 53. Now, uh, before we jump into it, I want to read it to you to set it in your mind. But I can't even do that without teaching you the first rule of Isaiah 53. The first rule and the most important thing to learn, perhaps, about Isaiah 53 is this. It doesn't start in Isaiah 53. It starts in Isaiah 52. Uh, When the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to pen these words, uh, I think I've said this before, there were no chapter or verse divisions in Scripture. Those were added later on uh, in church history as an aid for readers. And our our, uh, English translators add in the 1500s, our English translators added chapter and verse divisions because they thought that that would be helpful as we study Scripture. But in some cases, they get the verse division wrong. Uh, This is a song. Isaiah 53 is one of the servant songs in Isaiah, and the song actually starts three verses earlier in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So, turn in your Bible over to Isaiah 52, 13. Uh, This is the fourth servant song in Isaiah. It's speaking prophetically and poetically about a mysterious figure that Isaiah has introduced to us as Emmanuel. Isaiah has foretold that Emmanuel will come and be a light to the Gentiles and uh, a deliverer for Israel. And here we find in very specific detail 
the work Emmanuel will perform. Let's read the text together, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Uh, And as we begin, this is the Lord speaking. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from men from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was a pressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. 700 years before he came into the world, God opened Isaiah's eyes to see the specifics of what Emmanuel would do when he came. And at the heart of his act is an act of substitution. Emmanuel was pierced and crushed in our place. The righteous one died in the place of the unrighteous. The loving shepherd laid down his life for his wandering sheep. Uh, The exalted king voluntarily died for his rebellious subjects. Augustine was right to point out that this is not primarily a prophecy. It's an Old Testament explanation of the gospel. It's a revelation of Emmanuel's saving death in the place of sinners. And yet, we do need to say it is a prophecy, and the fact that it's a prophecy is very important. Uh, If you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 45 and 46, and we saw the prophecy about God raising up uh, a Gentile king named Cyrus who would then deliver his people 
from the Babylonian captivity. Well, we have the advantage uh, in our historical moment of seeing that that prophecy came true. We can see that it was confirmed. In his, you can read secular histories, and they tell you that Cyrus did exactly what Isaiah uh, foretold ahead of time he would do. And we have the same dynamic going on with this passage. Jesus of Nazareth came and fulfilled the prophecies in this passage. And so, when you read the story of your own salvation, knowing that this was written 700 years before Jesus did what He did, you not only have a revelation of God's love for humanity, you have a confirmation and validation of your salvation. New Covenant Christians uh, can, uh, can find confirmation in this prophecy and a greater confidence in the sal- salvation we've received because we see it as a prophecy that was fulfilled in history. Now, as we've gone through Isaiah together, I've tried to alternate between doing survey sermons where we look at the themes of uh, a cluster of chapters together, and then do more in-depth sermons where we look at one chapter or one paragraph at a time. And if you're a student of Isaiah following this series, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor Chris, Last week, we were in Isaiah 46, like what happens in Isaiah 47 through 52. And so, I do want to give you uh, a survey of that, a very brief one. Uh, What I'm tempted to say is this. We've already looked at Isaiah 40 through 48. I gave two overview sermons on those chapters. Isaiah 49 and 50, uh, through 52, they deal at length with this problem of Israel's estrangement from God, but they also talk about God's desire to restore Israel to Himself. The trouble is, they don't say exactly how He'll do it in Isaiah 49 through 52, which sets up this chapter well, because this chapter now explains how He'll restore the wandering heart's of the sheep of Israel to Himself. Now, I think that's a good survey of the chapters that lead up to this one, but giving that kind of survey and just letting it stand, that is hopelessly impoverished, because to understand uh, Isaiah 53, you have to understand the larger context of the purpose it serves and where it sits in Isaiah. Uh, For our purposes, we've outlined the book of Isaiah into two sections. In chapters 1 through 39, you have a lot of prophecies of judgment. There is hope. We we get the promise of uh, Emmanuel. Uh, It's not like there's no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness, no good news, but it is primarily messages of judgment and warnings that God will hold everyone accountable for their sin. That's Isaiah 1 through 39. We learn that God will hold not just Jews, who He's made a special covenant with, but also Gentiles. He'll hold all people accountable for their sins. He will hold nations as well as individuals accountable for their sins. But in Isaiah 43, the whole… excuse me, in Isaiah 40, in Isaiah 40, the whole tone changes. And from Isaiah 40 to the end of the book, which is chapter 66, there's a lot more comfort there's an emphasis on God's grace. And what Isaiah 40 and following basically communicate is this. Our sins are serious. They will destroy us if there is no remedy found for them. But there is hope because God is not just a judge. He's also a Savior. He's willing to pardon and save those who will confess what they've done and come to Him. Now, this is important for understanding the setting of Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 are 27 chapters. 
And the way they break down is into three sections of nine chapters each. In the first nine chapters, those first nine chapters come right after there's been this prophecy by Isaiah that uh, the people of Judah are going to go into a Babylonian captivity. And that was the first time in their history that they had heard about that captivity. Isaiah was the first prophet to warn people that was coming. And so that was a big deal. That was a shock to the nation. So, following on that prophecy, Isaiah 40 through 48 are all about the way God will deliver Israel from their Babylonian captivity. Yes, they'll go into captivity, and God intends to use it to cleanse them from their sins, but they won't be in that captivity forever. God will raise up a deliverer for them, Cyrus, who we've talked about in previous sermons, and uh, after 70 years, actually, he doesn't say that here. You have to get to Jeremiah, where you learn it's 70 years, but after 70 years, he'll restore them to the land. So, uh, the first nine verses are really about national deliverance, God's sovereignty over nations and deliverance as a nation. The second nine chapters have to do with deliverance from personal sin. How is it that God will redeem individuals who have wandering hearts to Him? And then the last nine chapters talk about the deliverance of the earth from the effects of the curse. It's there where you see prophecies about uh, the coming messianic kingdom and uh, the new heaven and new earth and and a restored earth uh, where the curse is taken away. Now, this is important. Isaiah 53 is in that middle section about deliverance from sin. How can individuals be delivered from sin? And in the middle of those nine chapters, uh, excuse me, and in those nine chapters, Isaiah 53 is the middle chapter. And if you include the verses from Isaiah 52 that should be part of that servant song, the middle verse in that middle chapter of the section is Isaiah 53, 5, which reads, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. The focal point of Isaiah 40 through 46 is this amazing substitutionary work that the servant of the Lord will do. That's the context we find this song in. Now, let me say a few words of overview just about the song itself. This is one of four servant songs in Isaiah that prophesy about a preeminent servant God will send to do His work in the world. As I said before, it contains five stanzas of three verses each. We're going to spend one Sunday on each stanza. And the first stanza presents an enigma. The Lord is speaking about a great servant He will send, and there is this great contrast between the servant's exaltation and the servant's suffering. It's baffling. How will someone high and lifted up and greatly exalted suffer the fate of having his appearance mutilated to the point where he barely looks human anymore. How does that fit? And that is an enigma that goes unresolved until you get to the last and final stanza in verses 12, uh, 10 through 12, and, and we'll resolve that enigma when we get to that section um, of this servant song. However, before resolving that enigma that the first three verses leave you with, the speaker shifts. In the first and last stanzas, the Lord is speaking about His special servant. But in the second, third, and fourth stanzas, there's a different speaker. There is a human being who identifies with the sins of His people Israel, 
And he says, through his grief, he laments about what the Lord has done, what the Lord's servant has done to reconcile people, and the fact that his people, Israel, have rejected that message. That they, they looked at what the servant did, and they perceived it to be that God was judging him. They didn't at all understand that God was judging the servant uh, for their sins. Um, they thought the servant must be cursed by God somehow. Uh, and so, understanding those two contrasts, that, that uh, the people of Israel are going to misunderstand what the servant is doing, and the contrast between his exaltation and his suffering, those contrasts help you understand this song. Now, today we're going to examine the first stanza, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Let's read those verses again together. The Lord says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what they had not been told they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. The Lord by, it begins by introducing his servant with a threefold statement about his exaltation. But that exaltation is followed, verse 14, by the greatest of all contrasts. When the servant comes, you would think people would celebrate him, and instead, people are repulsed by him because of some unnamed suffering that consumes his individuality and his humanity. His suffering is so great, he becomes unrecognizable as an individual and so mutilated he barely looks human. That suffering is so appalling that people uh, will look on it and be repulsed, and yet what happens, it's going to happen in Israel, it won't stay in Israel. It'll go, the news of what happens will go global. It'll have a worldwide impact. And that impact won't just be limited to Israel. It'll go global and transform Gentile nations and Gentile kings. In fact, that word uh, nations in verse 15, you could also legitimately translate it Gentiles. Right? Gentiles are going to hear about this. Gentiles are included in seeing what this suffering servant will do. And, uh, and really, I think the theme of these first three verses is one of uh, shock. People are going to be shocked. They're going to be appalled. And, and even for us as readers, seeing the effect of what He does, there's some shocking results. And so that's our outline today. Our outline is uh, in verse 13, there is a shocking revelation about the Lord's servant in verse 14, a shocking mutilation, and in verse 15, a shocking exaltation. Let's look first at the way the Lord introduces His servant. There is a shocking revelation about Him. Again, verse 13 reads, "'Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted.'" Uh, verse 13 contains the main command of the passage, which is, for us as readers, which is, "'Behold.'" And in Hebrew, the idea is, <clears throat> pay attention. Give me, your, give me your full attention. Listen carefully to what I have to say. This is important. And I would add that if the servant's capacity to forgive our sins is what this passage says it is, we should listen. This is very important to listen to. Uh, and notice what the Lord highlights first about His servant. The way He introduces His servant is a servant who will be sent to do His will, and what this servant is sent to do, he will prosper in. In other words, this servant won't fail in his mission. He will achieve success. That Hebrew word prosper is used in other places in the Old Testament to speak of 
wise planning and hard work that lead to success. And so, in the Hebrew mindset, it isn't just the result of winning, being successful. Uh, it's also the process of getting there. When His servant comes on the scene, if you're in tune with what the Lord is doing through him, what you're going to see is that the way He goes about His work is wise. Uh, he chooses the best way to get it done. He is a wise servant, but then you're also going to see that he has to work hard. The victory he will win is a hard-fought victory uh, that the servant has to suffer for. And so, that's the idea of the word prosper. The result of his hard work done in wisdom leading to success will then be that he becomes high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, this is where the shock of this verse comes in, and it's something that I think could be easy to miss as English readers. Um, you have to deal, you, you can't overlook what these words, high and lifted up and greatly exalted, mean. Uh, high and lifted up go together. It's a phrase, uh, a Hebrew phrase that goes together. It was a, a Hebrew figure of speech, and it's only used four other times in the Old Testament. Excuse me. It's only used a total of four times in the Old Testament, including this one. Let me read you the other three times it's used and pay attention to who it is that's high and lifted up in these verses. Isaiah 6.1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah 33.10, now will I will arise, says the Lord, now I will be high and lifted up. Isaiah 57.15, for thus says the high and lifted up one who lives forever, whose name is holy. And in, in context, it's speaking of the Lord. High and lifted up then is a combination of Hebrew words used to describe God in the Old Testament. And what about the word exalted? Well, the word exalted was used back in Isaiah 2.17. Uh, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. So, who is exalted in the Old Testament? Who is described as high and lifted up as a Hebrew figure of speech? Answer, not mankind. It's God alone. And so, based on these three words, what does this say then about the servant of the Lord? Could this servant of the Lord, who is high and lifted up and exalted in a way that is only appropriate to speak of God Himself, could this servant be the nation of Israel? Could it be the prophet Isaiah? Uh, the answer in both cases is no. Israel is not going to become a voluntary guilt offering who doesn't open their mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, who will vicariously atone for the sins of other nations. Isaiah, uh, he isn't going to bear, he can't be a guilt offering uh, to take in his body the sins other people have committed. He's already confessed that he's a man of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips. No, this is speaking of Messiah or no one else. Uh, this can't be the nation of Israel, and I'll go more next week. I'll go more into why this can't be the nation of Israel. This can't be the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has already prophesied ahead of time that the servant of the Lord will be born to a virgin and named Emmanuel, and the name Emmanuel means God among us. Though he will be a human child born to us and a son given to us, Isaiah 9, he will also be a supernatural counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. Though he is a descendant of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11, 
He will be both the root and shoot of Jesse's family tree. He will be an offspring of Jesse, yes, but in some sense, he will also be the source of Jesse's family, uh, Jesse's family tree. How does this all fit together? Well, the details of Messianic prophecy make it clear that the Lord's servant will be truly human, born of a virgin, a son, but he will also be truly God. He will be divine. According to the Old Testament, Yahweh alone is greatly exalted, but here Yahweh says of His own servant that He's sending that the servant will be greatly exalted just as He is. Uh, with that in mind, listen then to the words of our own Apostle Paul. This is what he wrote uh, to the Philippian church about the Lord Jesus Christ. "'Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus.'" who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. Uh, what did he uh, humble himself? What did he take on the form of? a servant, right? I, I think that Paul has this passage in mind as he writes that to the Philippian church. This servant that God will send isn't a nation. It's not the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this is the Lord's testimony about His servant. He will succeed in His mission, uh, and He will also be a servant who deserves praise and honor that is only appropriate for God Himself. Um, and I think that's what's shocking if you read the verse and you're just expecting that this servant God sends will only be a human being. Now, based on that prophecy, what you would expect to come next then would be amazing signs and wonders and feats that this servant of the Lord will perform. But in verse 14, we're introduced to this horrible suffering. Look at verse 14 again. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men." Um, that first line throws everybody for a loop, and I'm happy to admit it threw me for a loop as well. Uh, it, but I, I want to explain it, and this is also important for understanding who's talking in each stanza as we move through uh, the servant song. This is Hebrew poetry, and it's not uncommon in Hebrew poetry to have the speaker uh, switch pronouns abruptly. A good example might be David in Psalm 23, where he portrays the Lord in the third person as a good shepherd, and then in the middle of the psalm, he then turns and just starts speaking to the Lord in, sec in the second person in prayer without any warning. You have no idea he's about to break into prayer. And it can feel, for an American, it can feel very abrupt right? There's no transition. There's no segue. It just, next thing you know, this other person is speaking. We have the same thing going on here. I think what's going on in the first line is that the Lord is speaking to His servant about how people will be astonished and shocked at Him. Now, the New American uh, Standard Translators, this is important because this will help you read your Bible, uh, it has the word, my people there in italics. Uh, whenever you see words in italics, at least in the New American Standard, what the translators are uh, confessing there is that you can't find those words in the Hebrew text of Isaiah, but they are supplying them because they think it helps an American audience understand the idea that's trying to be communicated. Now, even though in many other places, I actually agree with what they put in italics. Here I don't really, but in most cases, I, I end up agreeing with what they put in italics. 
My preference would be they just leave them all out and let us wrestle with what the texts mean. It would create a lot more wrestling. It would create some confusion and questions, but the questions are a good thing. Wrestling with the text is a good thing. I'm all for leaving the italicized words out and just wrestling with what this could mean. Uh, I think that's what's going on there. But the main point uh, that I want you to see in this verse is the suffering of the servant. The servant's appearance will be marred more than any man. He will be so disfigured by his suffering that if his friends didn't know what, was ha- what had happened to him, they wouldn't be able to recognize him. His form will be mutilated more than the sons of men, which in Hebrew means he'll become so marred he won't look human. His suffering will be astonishing to people. That's the word at the beginning of the verse, astonished. Uh, it means appalled, uh, shocking. Uh, they'll be shocked. And that's where I get the, the warrant for my sermon title, that this is a shocking servant of the Lord. Uh, when He comes, He will shock people, in this case, by His suffering. Uh, and this predicted suffering, I think you guys anticipate this, this is prophesying about the crucifixion and what led up to it. Uh, in an earlier chapter of uh, a servant song, uh, I skipped over the last two servant songs. So, what I'll do next week as part of my introduction is take you through what those middle two servant songs are teaching. But in an earlier servant song, we see the servant himself speak ahead of time prophetically about what He will come and do. And when He speaks, He speaks ahead of time. He foretells that people will beat Him, pluck out His beard, and spit on Him. And you all know what happened to Jesus. He was scourged just like Isaiah 53, 5 prophesies. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. Uh, This is a shocking suffering for the servant of the Lord, especially, uh, I think it's counterintuitive to us because you would expect that if a servant of the Lord comes who's successful, they'll receive respect, and and even people who might have been hostile to them will have to respect the amazing things that they do. Uh, This is an unexpected kind of suffering for the great and mighty servant of the Lord to go through, at least to the natural mind. And Isaiah didn't prophesy that it would just be shocking to the people of Israel who witnessed it. This news will go global to the Gentile nations, and they will be shocked by it as well. Look at verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. There is a controversy here over whether the servant will sprinkle many nations or startle and surprise and shock many nations, which would fit my sermon outline again, the word shocking in there. Uh, And really what it comes down to is this Hebrew word has two different meanings, and we're all trying to figure out, well, which which meaning of the word is being used here. And uh, I think it's good for us, I think it would be positive for us to say while the search for which meaning is being used is very important for pastors and our Bible scholars to to work hard at, I think we can safely say He will do both. On the one hand, uh, uh, He will shock people with their suffering. People will, will be so startled by Him that kings who always have the right to speak will shut their mouths on account of Him. 
And yet the other stanzas also go, go on to explain how He will sprinkle many people by His blood for the forgiveness of sins. So notice two things here. There's a cause and effect relationship between His suffering and the sprinkling of the nations. It's by His shocking and unexpected suffering that He will sprinkle the nations, and it will also have a global impact. What the servant does when he comes won't stay in Israel. The world will hear about it, and they won't just hear about it. Here's what I love about this verse. They won't just hear about it. Many of them will respond in faith. Where do I get that from? Well, let me explain to you why I believe this teaches many Gentiles will respond in faith. First of all, I think it's just good interpretation, but also I have a slam-dunk argument from the New Testament that I'll save till the end. So, let's work together for a moment at interpretation. When you're interpreting a prophet, you have to be sensitive to repeated words and phrases. And what you have here are repeated words and phrases that you should notice about idolatry and hard-heartedness. They go all the way back to Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, God told Isaiah ahead of time that he would have a very difficult ministry. He would speak truth, and most people in Judah weren't going to listen to his message. In fact, this is the way the Lord said it. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. That is a picture of spiritual blindness. The people have eyes. Physically, they can see, but spiritually, they're blind to truth. They have ears. They understand what, uh, what Isaiah is saying, but they turn from it because they don't like what it adds up to. Uh, Isaiah's message in his generation fell on willingly deaf ears and willingly blind eyes, people who turned a blind eye because they wouldn't be reconciled to the Lord. But what will happen when this message of the servant's shocking suffering goes out to Gentile nations? Well, listen to this. Those Gentiles, what they had not been previously told, they will see. They'll perceive it. And what those Gentiles had not previously heard, they will understand. So, the message of the servant's suffering won't fail because when it goes to the Gentiles, it won't fall on deaf ears or blind eyes. This wraps up the stanza then with a confirmation that the servant will succeed, right? Think about the dynamic. If the servant comes and offers himself as a guilt offering for sin, but nobody wants to accept that guilt offering, then even though he did what he needed to do, his mission fails, right? And we need to say this, right? Uh, sheep that wander, they don't want to understand what the Lord has to say, uh, right? People who are spiritually blind, uh, they aren't going to be reconciled to the Lord. Uh, but the suffering servant, uh, his suffering won't be in vain. Gentile nations will perceive the meaning when they're told. They will understand and respond in faith to the story. Now, the reason I'm taking this interpretation is not just because I believe it's what Isaiah teaches. I have confirmation that that's what this verse teaches from the Apostle Paul. In Romans 15, when Paul is explaining his ministry to the church in Rome, he tells them why he likes to go and do frontier uh, pioneer missions work, if you will. He says to them, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But it is written, what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. 
According to the Apostle Paul, when God saved him and made him the apostle to the Gentiles, God told him ahead of time, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and receive forgiveness of sins. That's recorded in Acts 26. So, based on the New Testament, we understand that what this means is that when this message goes to the Gentiles, it will receive a better reception than it did with the hard-hearted Jews of Isaiah's day. So, verse 13 and verse 15 then are organically connected. The good news of these verses isn't just the Lord's voluntarily, uh, voluntary suffering, uh, not just that He'll be marred on our behalf. The good news is that God will work to open the eyes of Gentile kings and Gentile nations so that they'll respond in faith. God's servant will prosper in His work. His substitutionary sacrifice will not abort. Uh, he will restore sight to the blind so that rebel subjects no longer see the servant and think of Him simply as marred and rejected by mankind. They will understand the substitute that He became for them. So, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 show us a shocking revelation about the servant of the Lord, if you're not prepared for it, that He will be truly man and truly God all at the same time. They include a shocking mutilation that begs the question, how can someone so highly exalted whose mission will be accomplished, how could their fate be that they would suffer in this way? How could that possibly fit with God prospering the servant? And you know that the rest of the servant song is going to explain that because the suffering actually was integral to him completing the mission. And then in these verses, there's a shocking exaltation among, among Gentile believers. What this pictures is Gentile, uh, Gentile people turning to the God of Israel, turning to Yahweh in mass and worshiping Him instead of the gods of their pagan forefathers. It's a shocking development in the history of redemption. And I want to close this morning by giving Isaiah the last word. As we move into Isaiah 53 verse 1 next week, we're going to hear, uh, it's going to be a different speaker. It won't be the Lord speaking anymore. We're going to hear a human being who identifies with the sins of His people say, who has believed our message? Um, And though the Lord says that many Gentiles will be saved, 52.15, we learn in chapter 53 verses 1 and following that uh, there is going to be a future generation of repentant Israel who sees uh, what Jesus of Nazareth did, and they're going to grieve and lament their own national history of rejecting Him down through the ages. Uh, The Jews had this text before Jesus came. They had it when He came. They had it, they have had it after He rose from the dead. And what has been their response? The majority of them haven't believed. It's only a small minority of the Jewish people in the world today who've turned to Jesus as their Savior. Uh, And the next nine verses are going to be a lament about the sad reality of the rejection of Yahweh's servant by His people. But that question that he says, who has believed our message, and I, I understand it's given more rhetorically, but who has believed our message, that actually becomes the question for you and I who are reading and studying this passage today. What about you? Do you believe that Jesus was pierced for your transgressions and crushed 
for your iniquities? Do you believe He bore your sin and interceded for your transgressions? Do you believe He rose from the dead for your justification? Do you see that He had to suffer before God exalted Him? Do you see that before He could become the exalted King, He had to humble Himself and take on the form of a servant? That's the gospel message. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the suffering servant Yahweh sent, and if you'll believe in your heart that after becoming our guilt offering, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved from the penalty of your sins because the suffering of the servant paid for your sins. He came to bear the just penalty for your sins in His body so that you could be forgiven. Let's pray.